episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Katie Bruce, Licensed Clinical Social Worker Supervisor, who will be talking about her practice and specialties the melted ice cream of being a person. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hi, thanks. How are you? Good. It's good to have you on. And um, for our listeners who don't know, Katie Bruce is my best friend. So this is <laughs> quite right. an honor. That's um, right. So, Katie Bruce, what are your credentials and experience? Well, I'm a licensed clinical social worker um, and I'm a board approved supervisor. I got my bachelor's in psychology and my master's in social work and then just went through clinical supervision um, during my first few years of practice and became a supervisor that way. So um, basically now I'm just working in private practice as a therapist. What kind of uh, experience do you have in terms of of mental health? Like what sorts of organizations, etc. have you worked in? So during my training, I was a part of running a diabetic supportive service for children and adults. Um, So kind of a fusion of community medical social work. And from there, I worked at a med surge hospital, um, gaining clinical training in the med surge department and then in the oncology department. So once I had graduated, I got a job at the local psychiatric hospital in Abilene, Texas, which was kind of, think of it as like a catchment area for a very large area surrounding it. So we saw everybody around there who had a need uh, because there wasn't really anyone else filling that need. And I worked there for about four and a half or five years. And then I moved to Georgetown, Texas to help start the outpatient program at so kind of a mixed experience between inpatient psych and outpatient psych Um, and then for the last two or three years I've been in private practice so 
kind of like the DSM come to life. You get to see, I think one year working in a psych hospital is kind of like five years working in another setting. Totally. So that's my story so far. Well, and you and I met at... We sure did. Yep. That was, uh, we worked in an outpatient clinic, a PHP and IOP. Um, and we met several other really great friends, uh, some who have been on this show, actually. Uh, shout out to Sean Sparks and Greer Colbertson. Mm-hmm. Um, we <laughs> they, all worked together at one point. It was awesome. That's right. They kind of blazed a trail for me to want to be on the podcast, too. How <laughs> 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 to stay a member of the gang somehow. <laughs> So, Katie Bruce, because um, I love referring to you as Katie Bruce, <laughs> um, what, what, uh, what is the name of your practice, and uh, where is your practice located? Right now, it's just my first and last name. Um, that's what I named my business. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's just my first and last name, and I'm practicing in Georgetown. I'm in the process of coming up with a more creative business name. So um, always looking for feedback about that and brainstorming. But right now it just looks like me um, working from home, doing telehealth, basically phone sessions, Zoom sessions. Um, Occasionally, if there's a really deep need, I can meet someone and do an in-person session. But since the world has become the way it is, I've just been doing most of my work from home. And so technically you can see anybody in this, who lives in the state of Texas. Right. Okay. So at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I do not accept insurance. Um, and there, that was a big decision that had kind of took me a long time to make, but I had made it before I got into practice. And it really just came from so many years working in a managed setting where it felt like insurance reviewers were making a lot of the treatment choices. And I felt like we could get closer to what somebody needs if we could make our own timeframes and objectives and things like that. So, you know, there is a drawback where some, for some it's, you know, not as cost effective, but the treatment can be more thorough. Um, and I don't do like your <clears throat> typical sliding scale either, but I do have a few spots in my practice that are those spots that are kind of like pay what you can temporarily until somebody's in a, a different situation financially. Which generally you offer more so for like current clients. Right. So if somebody has a financial hardship, <clears throat> they don't have to necessarily stop therapy with you. You can make some sort of financial agreement. Right. And I try to get as close as I can while still being able to keep my business operating. Um, Just to that notion that, you know, it's it's hard to accept that money has to be an obstacle for somebody to get well or feel like they can keep their head above water. So if it's like a put it on my tab, you know, and I can pay that off next week or the week after or whenever we we try to get really creative um, working around those things because there's one message I really want to send and that is regardless of the position you're in or what you have someone still wants to help you and see you and all that good point I appreciate you saying that on the show sure now in your practice do you have weekend or evening appointments available so my general schedule is kind of like Tuesday through Friday 9 to 5 
I use Monday like <clears throat> admin, you know, administrative stuff, paperwork, and um, can be a flex day for sessions if needed. So that's kind of my on paper schedule, but I do, I am willing to do a weekend session if need be or after hours if it's kind of an emergency or something close to it. Sure. And then there's a lot of people who temporarily a part of their treatment plan is maybe to do some kind of opposite action or replace an unwanted behavior by just sharing their emotional experience at the moment with another human and so I invite them to text me or call me if you need to you know in the evenings or or even people that I say I, I want you to do this as a part of your treatment plan so sometimes that's a part of the deal too sure yeah yeah, I mean, being a therapist is a whole lot more than just an hour right, a week, right. <laughs> or 50 minutes, right. rather. Um, now, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? It is. Um, I was very <laughs> undecided at my first couple years of college. I was just kind of in a place with myself, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but a few really wonderful therapists entered my life at that time, and through going to therapy with them, I thought, I think I would like to do this kind of thing with people um, as my job. So, and then there was just a lot of serendipitous moments that unfolded from there that kind of let me know that that was probably a good call for me for a career. What about it was like really what drew you to being a therapist? I've always been kind of a people person. I like being around people um, I've always been interested in what they think and feel and just kind of why we're all like this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, about myself first, right? And then about other people assuming that they might have that same question. And um, people are the place that I don't get bored. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, there's a thousand million things to say about that, but of like course. that's my podcast answer. <laughs> And you're sticking to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, like hobbies, interests, TV shows you watch, music you listen to, pets, etc. Well, I really like finding a good swimming hole from time to time. I really like to cook, you know, with really no rules or recipes, just kind of, <laughs> it's like art, but with food. I like spending time with the people I love um, in groups, but also individually. I think it's a whole different thing that happens um, when you get to be with someone one-on-one. -on -one. I like to write, you know, I enjoy um, any body of water sitting around and kind of, it's grounding to me. Like it's a place that I feel a certain way I can't. I can't get that feeling in all environments. So nature, you know, mm -hmm. um, running around exploring stuff with you, as you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then also kind of trying to find that, do that spiritual dance slash battle of figuring out how much time I need for me, you know, what's important um, just for me and my relationship with myself. And I love to piddle. <laughs> I like to be in my house thinking about things and rearranging things and just kind of being in my own world staring at the ceiling right staring looking around, looking um, around. making stationary right yeah i do like to make she stationary. makes beautiful stationery. <laughs> thanks so um 
it's that it's that dance of being with people being involved in things I like and then just figuring out how to be with myself more and more I love TV too I forgot to say that um, I love all crime murder. all things dark murder yeah ID and um, you know all that but I I'm a sucker for just a good drama too like there's something so delicious about finding a show and there's like so many episodes of it and <laughs> Um, and then the feelings you have when it's over and right. done. Right. Like, I know those people. They're my friends. How, where, how am I going to see them now? I have to start all over. It's emotional roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. And I'm really into music, too, um, of every kind. I got really into, like, I don't know, the last few months, maybe, Glass Animals and, like, Chance the Rapper and random kind of older stuff like Sam Cooke or Otis Redding and it's just all over the map I find myself having a different musical mood from like hour to hour I feel that yeah yeah so in your practice what modalities would you say you draw upon I mean we know it varies like our approach should vary from person to person right <laughs> yeah but um what what do you find yourself drawing upon the most I'm glad you said that because <clears throat> I know we've talked about this too. It's very eclectic. Um, I just try to focus on what works uh, with that person. You know, growing up in the field, I liked the idea of, you know, the relational model, <clears throat> CBT, solution focused stuff, narrative therapy, um, things like that, and delivering those lenses through like a really well kind of like a living room setting feel um and i used to feel some imposter syndrome around being asked that because it was like i'm weird if i don't have an answer at the ready um like like i said like we've talked about but you you know we learned the theories we learned the approaches and you do this long enough that it becomes kind of intuitive like you find yourself just pulling a tool out of your tool bag without even really realizing it right um just because you see what comes up in the room about this person and and kind of what would work for them so it's just a tool bag i carry around right, really right, right yeah yeah and so you know the title of this episode the melted ice cream of being a person which i told my sister cassie about and she was like that sounds so sad um <laughs> But obviously this is a metaphor, right? Can right. you tell us all that this means? Yeah, so first I think the why, right? Like why would we be talking about this? It's for me um, to better see, hear, understand, accept the many parts of ourselves, right? So I kind of thought, what do I see a lot of? Um, and and realize some themes that come up a lot. And so that looks like, mood support uh, helping people better understand themselves learning but also equally importantly unlearning mm -hmm. you know stuff that we've been taught that isn't working anymore um, adjustment to life changes identity and stuff as it's evolving and changing addiction codependency trauma realized or unrealized mm -hmm. um, guilt and shame perfectionism over responsibility ego stuff you know and you add that to just being a human the day-to-day -day hardship um and it's hard to separate you know who i am from what's happened to me um from what works or doesn't and kind of what the hell to do about all that mm -hmm. so it's almost like 
these themes I've mentioned are the original flavors of the ice cream. And through life, it just gets all melted together and people can't remember their original 31 flavors, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of um, just seeking those original flavors so that they can, so we can carry them in a way that makes sense for us. Mm -hmm. And and it's not kind of like almost weaponized against us or or someone else through just being unconscious about it. Right. So insight is a big part of all this. Absolutely. I think people... Well, I'll say I did not know in the beginning that there was another way to think about it, you know? So, and I think a lot of people are like that. So I think it's just saying, hey, you know, there's another way to think about this or look at it. What? Yeah. Tell me what you mean. And then this giant uh, conversation and relationship comes to life just, just from someone realizing I don't have to think about it this way, you know? A lot of the things you talked about really do go back to this to trauma Mm -hmm. you know a lot of those things are a byproduct of trauma Mm -hmm. and it's funny what can be a trauma or impact someone in a traumatic way that they never identified it as that so they've been impacted in this huge way their whole life changes worldview changes what i believe about myself and how i should act changes and I don't even realize it happened to me. Mm-hmm. So how do we get back? How do we get our 31 original flavors back? Well, you know, for me, I'm going to go toward codependence on this. Okay. Um, it's one thing I like to look at because I think it's a common dynamic and issue that's causing a lot of these people's pain that mm-hmm. we're treating. Um, and it's underneath like the recognized diagnoses and exacerbating them. Sure. So I think it's important for people to know like this, for example, the codependence, codependency thing is not a diagnosis. It's just, it's a, it's a pattern of thinking or behavior, um, focused on another person, sometimes as a way to manage our own experiences or worth and belonging. Um, and it has this funny way of helping us avoid our own issues. Um, It's a notion or a belief that, you know, it's somehow more important to help or rescue or save or manage others than myself. Um, And it's learned and developed in early years, you know, so that's why it's hard, hard to recognize. And my awakening to this, I think it's like this for a lot of people, it happens all of a sudden, you didn't really see it coming. But my awakening to what the hell codependence even is, I think started the day I started my first job as a therapist. Um, in the background of that, I had kind of slowly been realizing that a large percentage of my own pain, it's like it could be stopped somehow, maybe by amending my own beliefs about myself or others. Um, but I knew that this, this, way of being for me had been reinforced by the systems that taught it to me in the first place and it felt like the truth and the way right how to be good how to how to belong but it's like so why am i not feeling good from doing it um so i had a mentor co-worker um 
do on one of, I think my first week during work, I was running around, you know, trying to please everyone and be perfect and do it exactly how I had learned it. And I race across the campus over to her to turn something in. And she just sees me for exactly who I am and says to me in that moment, what the fuck are you over responsible? <laughs> and I thought, Oh God, this lady is mean, right? Like, <laughs> um, but it was the first time that being responsible or over responsible kind of came across to me as like unnecessary or illogical or not helpful. Um, and something moved in me and it was like this system I had for belonging and being good wasn't actually the way to where I was trying to get. So she did this thing to me or around me that has now kind of become one of my clinical superpowers, which was just to say the thing, mm -hmm. just to say the thing and not first try to manage how it was going to make the person feel. Um, she was modeling for me mm -hmm. basically. And I think that that's part of what we can do as clinicians with other people once we've like kind of had it Figured done to it us and yeah. learned, how, learned right. how to carry it. Right. But it, she was being direct and honest with me regarding a hard topic that was central to my being, but it was with compassion and understanding. Cause after she asked me, what the fuck are you over responsible? Then she was willing to help me find my lines to just be responsible, not right. irresponsible and not over responsible because I had been taught that being over responsible is good, right? Like is more responsible, mm -hmm. but really, and it's tricky because that gets reinforced too. It absolutely does by so many systems that we live in. But I saw this very clearly with her that day that anything outside of responsibility is irresponsible, even if it's over responsible, because it's, it's a place where we're not responding effectively. Right. Right. Um, so it was like her slowly teaching me this practice of self-honesty, you know, without punishment or ego defense. Um, and in order to express myself most honestly into this world we live in, I had to find people who were willing to be honest with me and not caretake or manage mm -hmm. my feelings because they were trusting me with the truth. So I learned how to hold it. I learned how to identify what I felt, what my truth was and say it or not shy away from talking to another person about theirs, even if I thought it would feel distressing for a minute. Um, and that was a huge like thing I had to get through to be a good therapist, because if you're, you know, worrying about hurt feelings, it's like, that's why they're there, you mm -hmm. know? So it made me stronger and it made me realize that, um, sometimes somebody just hasn't ever had an opportunity to have a conversation like that. Mm -hmm. And that when I finally got that opportunity, I knew exactly that it was different from many of the other conversations I've had with people who were older than me or more experienced in trying to teach me something. And so of course the over-responsible part of me is like, oh, okay, what all do I have to do to help people learn this? And how am I going to perfect it when I had to remember to boil it back down and say, just have an honest conversation with them. Right. Um, so what's happening behind the scenes there when someone is in that belief set that's consistent with um, codependence is it's like the burnout and exhaustion and tiredness and loneliness. 
and rage kind of get the better of you. You start out just wanting to help people feel okay. Um, through doing that, it helps you feel okay, right? But it gets too heavy, and then there's this big anger piece that you're carrying around. Resentment. Right, resentment, um, feeling invisible, and then this realization that you were an accessory to this sort of like crime against yourself. So it's good news because it's like if I carry myself differently, people will see me. But the fact that I haven't felt seen yet, like I have something to do with that. You know, mm -hmm. that's a hard pill to swallow. Sure is. Um, so for me, it was kind of like, how do I strip away the junk? Because I know some of these qualities are good. Like, I want to help people. I want them to be okay. I want to be empathic and benevolent. And, you know, but if I don't understand how to consciously hold my own self and experience responsibly, then that set of helping in, in, when it's wearing the codependency cloak is really just... Mismanaged. It's, yeah, it's a weapon against yeah. you and myself. And what I was trying to do was help, right? But now I've hurt us both. And, but the difference is being conscious, owning my experience first. And then when I'm trying to help, I am maybe helping more because it's from a conscious place of choice. It's not from an obligatory place of compulsion. Right. Right. Because codependence does have that, that addictive slant to it. Right. Sure like is. one's too many and a thousand's never enough. So the difference between this being a compulsive thing that you can't stop in yourself and you're mad at it is finding worth in other places and owning your own emotional experience so you can be like a partner to someone in theirs and it turns out we were never supposed to fix it for somebody else right right, right. <laughs> can you believe that right? <laughs> so what are, what are your thoughts about this as you were talking i wrote this down i wrote down Codependency, a byproduct of oppressive systems, question mark. What are your thoughts about that? <clears throat> yes, but I think, you know. And by systems, I can also mean like families, sure. and, you know, communities, etc. Yeah, like the family of origin system. I think that's true on a level. Codependent relationships are relationships where there are no boundaries um, and people take on the role of managing or controlling another person's emotions, decisions, or behavior. So here's an important part of this. Yes, we learn it from our family of origin. Um, oftentimes we've already taken on this system of belief before, like I can hold a big kid cup, right? Like it comes before all my motor skills even. Um, but that same thing happened to my parents, right? Like they didn't plan to teach me a bad message. They taught me the one they knew. And that was important for me too, because I needed to know that the people who loved me didn't like purposely set me up for this experience. And it helped me to mend some parts of those relationships too, to realize like, hey, what, what I'm going through, what's happened to me, that happened to you too. You're just older than me. Self-compassion and other compassion. Sure, so it's, it's running rampant, right. you know, in families. And there's a lot of enmeshment that's just a natural byproduct of parenting children. They Children do fully depend on their parents. Right. Um, it can be hard to break that cycle. Um, it can develop, you, you know, when you when there's an absent parent, whether that's that they're just absent or so they're work, mm -hmm, whether they're working so hard to put food on the table or 
you have a sick parent or an addicted parent. It's like Mm -hmm. there's something going on in the environment that for whatever reason made me feel like it was important to to first identify other people's emotions um, and put that before my own. Right. So it happens a lot of different ways. And then once we've learned this belief set, it can happen in varying degrees, like the, the degree to which it impacts my whole life. Um, that's kind of a spectrum too. Mm -hmm. But I think definitely people with addiction in their families or abuse of any kind, or maybe they were, you know, all of that's true. And they were like the older sibling or something like that. It's, um, it can come from a lot of different places, but yes, systems definitely. And then once we're this way, the reinforcement of it, you know, becomes the next, the next glue that we don't want to be there and so a a lot of this like in my experience a lot of this can uh, and is related to things like the development of negative core beliefs about oneself or or the world or Mm -hmm. you know just unbalanced thinking about Mm -hmm. our place and all of that Mm -hmm. yeah and that's how i would say that's kind of one of the doors into this is if I believe about myself that I'm only good if I'm helping and there's so many times in life where I can't help I want to but I can't then my worth is you know tied up it's held hostage in that from Mm me Um, so yeah core beliefs are a huge part of this other people go before me they deserve it more if I make it okay for them it'll be okay for me um, all kinds of things like that. So yeah, core beliefs is a big a big door that we walk through. Kind of in that, it, you know, it's a flavor of ice cream right, that gets right. melted in. Right, right. What do you have to say to people who are scared to set boundaries because of fear or worry about how the other person will react or feel? Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Same mood, whatever. Um, I say that. I say yeah, it's really hard, and it can feel like the earth has fallen out from underneath you. Um, It's, it's that uh, the relationship will change a little bit. You you know, you may be afraid of a, which is also kind of the intention. It is. Yeah, it is. It's funny. It's like that whole right on the other side of fear is everything you want and need. Mm -hmm. It's that exactly like, yes, it is going to change the relationship. And that is scary. It is also what is needed. And anytime I change the dynamic in a relationship, the other person's going to like take a minute to catch up to this, you know, the 2.0 version. And you might get some anger or some blame or some, you know, you've changed or whatever. And it's like, yes, I am. And just being able to allow yourself to stand firm in that, like, here's what it is for me now. And the important thing about that is boundaries are not what you can and can't do they are what i will and won't do Mm -hmm. so it's almost like even if you don't change at all i'm still going to be changing in these following ways um which goes along with the other um melted flavors in this like learning and unlearning mm -hmm. and like um you know setting boundaries and and also i think that goes along with guilt and shame because a lot of people will try and set a boundary like one time 
and then the person doesn't react well, blames that person, that person experiences a deep sense of guilt and shame about trying to set said boundary mm -hmm. about what it is they need, mm -hmm. and then just kind of retreats from it altogether. Yeah, and it's so damn stressful. I mean, it's easy to kind of emotionally black out in it all, right? Like, you, the, it's so hard to even realize that you need to do this, right. where you need to do this, to who you need to say these things, and then they don't listen or they can't hear, right? Because it's just, it's a hard new thing in the relationship. And so by this time, if you're not just so exhausted from that, <laughs> the next step is to broken record the technique, right? right. Like you keep saying the thing until it. it gets heard. Right. And this just occurred to me. I don't know if anyone else's mom said this to them, but it's like, I said, no, don't ask me again. Mm -hmm. Or if you, if I say no and you ask me again, here's what's going to happen because she was giving me a boundary. But in my adult life, I can hear that voice sometimes. The per I said the boundary, they didn't, they said no, essentially. So I shouldn't ask again. So we're, we're having to unlearn that original message and learn the new one, which is repeat it until it's heard. And if you get the sense then that it's just not going, like the person's not even willing to try or observe that boundary, then that's when it's okay to like take additional space or retreat a little bit from that relationship. I think the fear is I will try to do this change. It won't work and I'll have to stay here anyway. And abandonment and rejection. Sure. That's, that's a big thing too. But here's the deal. If I set a boundary with you and you don't get it and I need to take space, that's me making a safe choice for myself. That's not Absolutely. you abandoning me. Right? right. But that's, it's hard to get your that's head around that. Yeah. It's hard to get your head around that until you try it like a weird food you've never tried it looks weird it smells weird right right now it's a bad food but you taste it man this is good i like how it smells i like how it tastes now i want to i want to eat it keep eating yeah and that's the way this is it's that uh, it's almost like that physiological because it has to do with the nervous system and it has you know and i'm an experiential learner so talking about doing this scared the hell out of me but when I did it for the first time and it worked, I felt, I felt like I knew how to help myself. Self-efficacy. Yeah, yeah. I felt like I knew how to not have to always feel this way forever. And that is just that feeling of I know how to have a better life or how to take care of myself better. I learned something. I think that's what everybody's after when they go to therapy. Absolutely. So a lot of people have a hard time setting boundaries because they have like extreme difficulty identifying what it is that they want or need. Right. And, and like a lot of times I know people find themselves feeling emotional about a situation. Mm -hmm and unable to identify exactly why it was that they felt that way you know like right and and blame it on other extraneous circumstances or themselves bingo that's the deal right there because we talked about how it originates right so it's it's a system where we had to deny our own needs to survive originally once you stop using that muscle long enough it doesn't work right anymore so just knowing what I myself feel like I know when I feel good 
and I know when I feel bad. But I may not, I may have to work a little more than Joe Blow over here to figure out if my distressing emotion is fear or sadness or anger because I'm not, I'm getting practiced still in that, right? And so it's hard for me to speak honestly about what my experience is if I can't find it. Exactly. Right? And then your listener's like, so what are you saying? <laughs> what is it? And you're like, I don't know. You know, yeah. I just know I need to say something. Okay. Um, and we've gone through this, right? Like I've done this with you and you're like, okay, well, when you know what you want to say, when you know what you're saying, when you know how you feel, tell me. Yeah. I'll hear it. And that's really nice too. You know, if, if someone has a loved one who's trying to work on codependence, it's like just saying to them, I'm here when you know what you want to say. It's not a make or break. It's not a time limited thing. Like the experience of you and what you feel can keep happening and I'll keep listening to it. Um, that's really helpful too, because one thing we don't want to do as good-hearted codependents is take up any space, right? That doesn't belong to us or whatever. So when a loved one's like, hey, just take your time, figure out what you think, figure out what you feel, and then I'll hear you. That's a really good like beginning place. So that's a way that people who are struggling with codependence, that their people around them can help support them mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it may be like, if you're a therapist to this person, it may be like, tell me the stories about what's happening. And then you may ask questions about how they felt throughout. That might be helpful instead of hearing the whole story and saying, so how does that make you feel? And they don't know. Right. right. <laughs> um, kind of like a guided, like you're, you're listening to the story, but helping guide it. And so if someone can't give you a feeling word, it's like, well, tell me what happened mm -hmm. and help and go, go back and kind yeah. of try to help them do context clues because we like becoming a therapist and a behavioral scientist helped me get to know myself better in this way, because I could tell sometimes first from my behavior, how I was feeling. Um, cause I just couldn't always see it from when the feeling started yeah. yeah our blind spots absolutely right and if somebody can't see their feelings specifically and individually um and where they took place right then that would be really hard for this person to find their stuck points right. if i don't know how i feel i don't know where i felt the most intense hard things that have shaped me or set me on a certain track so sometimes this part this this part about codependence or this part about how i view myself and how i talk to myself is really good to do before and within other work around other diagnoses because it gives you a skill set to unpack the rest of that with that's not there um it's not there yet right 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 now, anything, I want to talk a little bit about guilt and shame, but I wanted to see if there's anything else that you feel is important for our listeners to know about codependence. Um, that codependent people are some of the greatest, most wonderful, sweet people I know, <laughs> and they're mad as hell, and they should be. <laughs> yes. And that there's a way to dismantle that effectively so that you get to stay who you are. You know, you get to stay helpful. 
You get to stay loving. You get to stay concerned about people if you want to. But you don't have to stay um, getting jerked around by your unconscious compulsive behavior. Right. Um, and it takes time. And just be gentle with yourself and be patient. Because um, it's something that you're missing for a long time, right? Or it wouldn't be this way. Right. So, you know, I have about a hundred trillion things to say more about that, but let's go to guilt and shame for now. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, all this is interrelated, right? Sure. Yeah. And so guilt and shame, I think, are also like their own flavors in all this, right? Mm -hmm. This whole con concept of this melted ice cream. Mm -hmm. um, what What is your experience with guilt and shame? What do you see people like dealing with out there? Like what... What do you think is important to mention about this? First thing, there are two different things. Right. When I learned that, it blew my mind. I thought guilt and shame was like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know a good metaphor there. I just, I thought it was two words talking about the same thing. And guilt is hardwired in our brain and it's positively correlated with a strong relationship with ourselves it's the thing that says like hey you did something wrong or you did something that you don't even believe in it doesn't match with who you are and it gets us to fix it so it helps us keep our relationships and ourselves and our concepts of ourselves cohesive and intact right shame serves no purpose it's a learned behavior that develops in this same place and it's this feeling, not that I did something bad, but that I am bad. And you know, it's astounding to me, or I guess it just, it hurts me to know how many people are still hurting behind not knowing that there are two different things. Um, because sometimes they're having a shame experience and they think they're bad because of it. Um, that's what shame is, right? To think I'm bad. So they're here like, oh, I, I need to fix all these things about myself. I need to... I'd only be happier if I did this. Right. Um, other people would want me around. I wouldn't need to kill myself, right? And it's like, no, you feel this way because of the shame. You're not feeling shame because you're bad. You feel bad because you have shame. And they realize like, oh, it's this thought process I need to work on. It's not that I need to like morph into a totally different person to stop yeah. feeling this way. It's that I need to understand I have a habit of taking on responsibility for everything that goes wrong in my environment every bad feeling that happens around me i feel somehow tied to that and that could be because someone in your early years told you that right you spilled your milk you shouldn't do that walk right and so if if i'm told i'm bad before i'm punished or before i'm abused that can be a way that it just sort of melts into the fibers of my brain but I think it's it's cool because it's like if you're feeling guilty about something, what is it? Did What did you do that you think is wrong? And how can I help you get on the path to amending that? Or if it's shame, we, we take a completely different course. Um, but that sense of shame is often one of the major feelings that the compulsion of helping, rescuing, right. fixing, saving comes from. Right. Right? So in that way, that that is me trying to manage my own experience through managing the experience of others. So it fits right, I mean, it fits right in. It's like one of the Over cornerstones. Yeah. 
but I don't even know I'm being controlling because I feel like I'm getting sucked into a drain, mm -hmm. right? I don't see myself as controlling. I see myself as um, desperate, kind of. So when people say things like, you're being controlling, it's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not being tyrannical. I feel like I'm dying. But to realize like some of those behaviors were controlling behaviors, not because I wanted to control people, because I wanted to feel safe. Right. It's like, oh shit, okay. Well then yeah, I was I did want to feel safe. I was being controlling. So now I can do something about that instead of just be in denial about it. It goes back to learning. Yeah. And unlearning. Absolutely. It kinda all does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll be damned. Who knew? I know. <laughs> Not us and originally. Well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, I think both you and I do with people a lot of insight-oriented type of therapy, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and that really is the meat of a lot of this is that learning and unlearning and looking, being able to look at something and see it for what it is rather than what it's been shrouded by or, mm -hmm. you know, like truth and, and like understanding right. and self-compassion and other compassion and, you know, like all the things. <laughs> right. And that I have a relationship with it, but I am not innately connected with it. Right. Um, like it, it, it's a part of me, but it's not me. Right. And I, I mean, I think, you know, you, you have your own reasons and I have my own reasons that have, I think impacted us equally, but they're different from our early years about all the things that you were having to pay attention to that weren't yourself mm -hmm. or your internal experience. Um, right, wrong, or indifferent, right? Sometimes it was okay and it made sense that that was happening. Other times it was blatantly harmful to us. Um, so I think that, I think it's safe to say probably everybody who was ever born had something in their early years or at some point that took precedent in terms of just attentional focus. It seemed more priority than them and how they were feeling and what they were thinking. So if you think and about safety, right. And safe, right. Absolutely. So if you think about that setup, then something like insight, right. Where I can have time and space to look at my things and see, see it see what it needs, see what it doesn't need. Like we didn't really have a lot of time and space to practice that for a long time because we were running around and hyperactive and trying to protect ourselves or trying to, you know, keep our sibling busy or trying to please everybody or trying to make sure everybody wasn't fight whatever the thing was. Everybody's got something that made it hard for them to learn the art of just being still and, and looking at myself on the inside. So I think that's part of why we like it so much is because it feels good. Mm -hmm. It feels good to be able to look at yourself and just see what you see and have some time to think about what to do about that. Um, and through practice of having it available to do more often, we get better at it. Yeah. It comes faster and it mean it comes with a bigger message. Um, and it's just so much fun. And when I say that, I mean like water to the soul to be able to see somebody do that mm -hmm. in front of you yep because inside is where you that's where change comes right absolutely absolutely uh you know some days you just wake up on some new shit <laughs> <laughs> you're just like i'm sick and tired of being sick and tired 
I want to change. I'm kind of learning how to do that. This is good knowledge. I'm going to share it with other people. And we're lucky enough to be therapists, so we get to do that during working hours. Yep. And I think a lot of the times that's really the place where I see people change from is the sick and tired of being sick and tired. Sure. It's a, the, yeah, it's definitely a tipping point. Like, it's the same pain over and over, and it just gets repetitive enough, and then one day it's like, uh, the pain of st- that, that Anais Neen, or, or I, I never say the name right, but, yeah. you know, the pain of, of staying the same was more than the pain of changing, something yeah. to that effect. And it's like, it just takes you over. It's almost not like a thought. It's like a rush of mm-hmm. just this, this is done. Mm-hmm. Like we, we got to do another way. Yeah. And, um, that's a powerful place to be because it says like, I'm going to, I'm going to have a hand in what happens to me. And there's a level of personal trust and safety that just comes with that alone. That's, you know, I think impacts the brain, like on a neurological level, just like trauma does. It lays down a new neural pathway. Like, Oh, this is how the world is going to be now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, talking about codependence, talking about guilt and shame, perfectionism over responsibility, learning, unlearning addiction, codependency, like all this stuff, Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. what we're talking about on a larger scale is like, balance right yeah it's it's all the places that humans shine from and that they hurt from and how to hold them in whatever order works for you because it's it's idiosyncratic right it should be but again they're in that original family system we may have learned like idiosyncrasy is not cool it's not okay you're gonna you're gonna get put out Mm -hmm. you won't belong but in recovery and in healing cultures and just in your life today as an adult, whoever's listening, do your own thing. It is okay to be idiosyncratic because we really kind of all need the same things, but the way the package it comes in, so to speak, it's like a fingerprint. There's as mm-hmm. many ways it looks as there are people. Yep. It's okay for us to just do it differently if it's working. Right. And, and, you know, another thing I want to say about all these behaviors is like, you know, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, it's often a result or response to trauma, Mm -hmm. right? And we learn those things initially because those help us manage a feeling of safety or being able to feel safe within an environment or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Um, But later at some point and when we start hurting is when they don't work for us anymore. Well, right. Like if I'm going skiing and I put on a hundred layers of clothing and then go to the Alps or something, which I've never done, (laughs) I'll be comfortable. If I take that same setup, that same stuff I had to keep me comfortable in the Alps to the Bahamas, it's going to be very uncomfortable. It's very hot. It's a very different environment. I need different tools. Oh my God, I'm just realizing this. So yeah, like you develop tools to survive in a certain environment and then the environment changes. Right. That's when you notice, um, you know, I think I need- Distress. Yeah, I think I need a different tool here. 
because that that is usually the moment of discomfort as we develop all of these you know weird and wonderful behaviors to protect us because they do they do protect us and they work but then there's a point where it's not helping like it used to and it's impeding our processes and functions and that's right about the time that we get uncomfortable enough to maybe change or not um, but that's sort of the answer that makes sense to like why did it like why did it not bother me the way I was for so long and then all of a sudden it did um, plus we've learned other tools in the meantime usually that we don't realize we've learned or have or would work just as good you know yeah so you know just to kind of wrap this up in a, a little bow here what message do you have for all the people out there who are trying to figure out their individual flavors again that you have them that they're there that there is a very unique and very special part of your identity that is absolutely worthy of love and belonging um, that is inextricably connected to other people and even if you're doing a thing trying to change and trying to feel better and that's scary because you're not sure where you'll belong then you will belong somewhere and I think it'll probably feel better than it ever did so it's hard to let go of everything you know um, but then you can hold what you're supposed to and so whatever you feel like might have been lost about you it's not um, and now you can just get rid of all the stuff you don't need anymore and I kind of think about it like recovery right like in our world it means like treatment and therapy and a mindset and a practice and all that but my brain goes back to because uh, I originally wanted to be a paleontologist <laughs> um, it, or a truck driver um, I felt like that was a public service honking the horn but it's like on an archaeological dig or something there they always use that word we've recovered artifacts or we've recovered some skeleton of some you know cool thing that now we're learning about they're saying it was already there we just found it again right that's what recovery should be looked at as it's not changing into a new person it's finding the one that was originally there i like that me too it feels better than like oh real broken i gotta fix it somehow right right okay well um Moving back on to some questions about you as a therapist. Um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Well, um, you know that I'm a social worker by training and licensure. So for me, that means looking at somebody always uh, in the context of their life, not just who they are during that hour with me right, right? right and what do they need you know what are the obstacles to growth or safety or acceptance or safe you know safe food and housing or financial stability and I think that sadly and wrongly folks from these 
communities you've listed are often they have more of those things um so you know it may look like stepping in to advocate at a community level for like a student of color at a university who's fallen through a crack she's getting overlooked and just saying hey we're both here to talk about this just making sure everything's getting done and um advocating first for her and then in a way that shows her kind of how she can do that for herself you know when needed or it may be family education or or making processing time available for somebody that's just learning new stuff about their identity or their sexuality and they they need their family to know um or they need somebody to (laughs) to tell their family what's really going on so that they can just understand it at an effective level um things like that but but i think we always need to pay attention to how many 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 things there are outside that hour that are getting in the way of what we're trying to do in that hour and if somebody's not safe and fed and got what they need they're not going to be making big emotional evolutions and stuff like that so right, we got to look at maslow's hierarchy of needs there right. a little bit right absolutely so i I kind of feel like I just look at each person the same way in that they're all very different and they all need something very different and just being willing you know to like step outside that hour and just do some stuff and like shake some things up every once in a while if you need to hey sometimes it's needed absolutely so you know a lot of people you know, I've had clients who have told me like, you know, I've been wanting to contact you for six months, but I was so scared or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the, the reason is. Um, and, and they're just so worried about that first session. Mm-hmm. So to help with some of that anxiety that people may feel perhaps around scheduling an appointment with you, what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Um, who I am with you or that's who I am Um, you're not gonna get like this formulaic me that sits there and just says nothing except how do you feel Um, we're gonna shoot the breeze we're gonna talk about deep stuff I will I tell people you can ask me anything you want to ask about me and I might answer it or I might say I don't want to answer that but you have the right to ask me questions too and know who you're sitting with and know who you're telling all of your deep stuff to um i will buy in in that way with you a little bit plus i've gotten so much out of modeling like i referenced earlier that sometimes that's what a person wants they're really not trying to like vet you or pick you apart they just understand they want to see how you do it you know um i'll cry with you i will laugh with you i will advocate for you um it's just I promise that it's easier than it seems and you know I've been on the other side of this plenty I know all the funny little weird things you wonder and want to know about your therapist that's why I say people can ask mm-hmm. um, I'll be your witness I'll hold space for you I'll help you if I can you know that's and I can teach you some things in the meantime right and and maybe those will help and if ever someone found out that these were not the case about me that I'm not helpful or I'm not the right space they want held for them they say it I say okay let's get you somebody different 
and I'll help you find the next person. It's not going to just be like, okay, bye. Sorry about <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to help you even if I'm not the one to help you. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's as like a like resource. Absolutely. And pe- people just, whoever's listening. So, you know, um, if you want to say, I just want one hour with you, Katie, and just see if I like you or not. We can do that too. There's there doesn't have to be a commitment of any kind, um, just for somebody to be able to try it out. Yeah, yeah. And don't let the what if it doesn't work or what if I don't like this person factor stop you from getting what you need. We're just people too. I mean, yeah. Like, I'm the least of your worries. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How would you say your clients would describe or say they experience you? This is weird. Oh, Katie Bruce, come on. I know. I just, okay, so here's some words I hear regularly and consistently. Um, Compassionate, kind, um, have a lot of information, willing to share it. Uh, A lot of people say they feel seen. Um, so I don't know what that would mean. I don't know how that would translate for someone new to come, but I will be real. Um, that's another one I hear a lot that I'm just a real person. And again, I don't really know what that means because I've always been a real person. Right, right, <laughs> I'm a right. real girl. <laughs> um, but I, I have a, a soft, friendly approach and I will be kind and we can have fun. But when it comes down to it, and you need somebody to tell you the truth, I will tell you the truth, even if I don't want to, even if you don't want me to, I will tell you the truth. This is why we're friends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wish y'all could see the look on its face right now. (laughs) Well, that's the feedback I get about me as a therapist, you know, it it just, you know, Mm -hmm. we're just two very real people in my opinion. Because Um, I was taught by my mentor that honest people are a joy to be around because you don't have to read their minds. Exactly. You don't have to wonder what they're thinking or feeling. Right. And I remember how much mind reading I was trying to do when I first showed up on the steps of my first therapist's office. Like I, that was my major thing. And I want people to know you don't have to do any of that with me. Like I'll just say it. Right. So that way, when I tell you something, you can trust it. Your mind doesn't go, well, I wonder if she really means it. Right. Because I'm going to be saying things that no one wants to say. Mm-hmm. So if I'm willing to do that, you know, I'm willing to. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to try to step around it. Right, right, right. For your feelings, because I believe that that's not helpful and right. that's not kind. Well, and in some ways, codependent. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Because I'm in recovery too, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> she is. It's true. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned laughing and crying. I got to ask this question, you know, even though you've already answered it. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? I get so many different answers to this. Mm -hmm. I am because I think there are some things that there's really no better response than to just sit there and say, I see it too, and I don't know what to do about it either. And it's really sad. Mm -hmm. It's really sad what happened to you or it's, you know, that kind of thing. But also there's that kind of crying and I've done it too, where it's just that frequent tearfulness and you, it's that stuck in the mud kind of crying where maybe someone it's coming out as sadness, but I get this like hint that maybe it's anger. And so I'll say, stop for a minute. Let's take a breath. Where do you feel it in your body? 
what's going on what emotion even is this kind of a thing so if I ever um, don't cry with you or stop you from crying it's not out of impatience or intolerance it's because I think I'm on to something right right um, and then just laughing yeah we do that all the time like right because I think I think chemistry in a therapeutic relationship is as important as any other relationship, maybe sure. more important than some. And um, if humor is a part of someone's resilience, why in the world would I as a therapist take that away from them? Right. Plus, I love to laugh, too. And I think it's bonding. Like, I think it shows people we're not just in this because you have a problem. Right. We're in this because we're two people just working on something and and it's the right thing to do to laugh sometimes. Right. And, and I think it's really, uh, you know, I think a lot of people see it as a very black and white in terms of crying with your clients. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, we work in the gray. We have to see that in the gray. There's times when it's appropriate and times when it's not. For sure. Absolutely. And I definitely am always looking for that line. You know, am I bolstering them in an experience that is not healthy for them or am I bolstering them in an experience that is healthy for them right how do you define holding space for someone I think that's like bringing myself in and out of the room and intervals that are effective like if holding space so if that means modeling you know bringing myself in a little bit if that means we're doing some trauma work and there needs to be absolutely no stimuli of any kind outside of what this person is speaking, then it's making space for that chameleon into the wallpaper, right? right. right? Until they call for you to, to come back to focus. It just means paying attention to what that person needs. And if that's different from what you assumed or plan they would need, abandon your plan (laughs) and prioritize what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. To me, that's what holding space is. Mm-hmm. Just being a soft place to fall, kind of. So next question, I think I, I know at least who mm-hmm. we're going to reference. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Hmm. Man. If you've got a couple, you can mention a couple. I have so many things. Um, Personally, some of the best advice from Susan Mm -hmm. in my own recovery is don't take the hook. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. Don't take the hook, which means... When someone needs something in front of you, ask yourself if they need it from you and if you have it to give. And if you don't, do not step up to do it in this compulsive, over-responsible way. Don't take the hook. Yep. You know, I think one of the things that was the biggest was stopping to eat lunch. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. And this, slow and steady wins the race. Okay, Katie Bruce, next question. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? 
uh, well, that some of the things that I would get really agitated about working in a uh, private psychiatric hospital in terms of, you know, how it was like a we, they thing, like we're, we're working in the trench and the administrators, this and that, like I would get kind of like blamey and, and stuff on a, on a hard long day about some of those things. And I would think to myself, well, when I'm running everything, there's not going to be these problems, right? Ego alert. And I realized once I'm in it, it's, I have all the same problems. Like I, so basically I learned that I was blaming something outside myself for an internal experience of stress all that time. And that really hurt my feelings. And then I realized that, okay, well, if, if it is kind of like my fault or my responsibility, then I guess I, I can do things to change it when I need to. Um, it's hard to own your own practice but it's hard in a way i like more than working for someone else trying to help people oh yeah so um and it's just taught me that i'm really lucky somehow i don't know i don't know how this happened but i get to wake up and talk to other human beings about what they think and feel in an honest way they trust me and we do some good things together. Like, um, I learned to kind of look around every once in a while and just see like all my basic needs are met and a lot of my other needs. Um, I love this work. I, th I think that's what it's continued to reinforce is I do like it a lot. Well, after a long, hard day of seeing clients, What's the one thing you have to do to take care of yourself? This is a two-part question. Okay. And, and what other things do you need to be sure to do to take care of yourself on a regular basis? After a day of seeing clients. Um, so even though I'm, I'm working on my codependence and over-responsibility stuff, I've learned that there's a part of me that's not a pathology, it's a gift. It's my like empathy and intuition and how I kind of just soak stuff in like a little sponge. You know, even when I'm doing all my rules, even when I'm doing all my boundaries and being conscious and all that. And so I need time to sit still and think alone not talking to or hearing from anybody for like anywhere from a few minutes to like an hour or more sometimes just to kind of let it you know settle in or pour out or something so that whatever next thing I do is my thing that time separates work from home because uh, a lot of us are working at home now yeah. so that's become kind of like my demarcation mm -hmm. is a little bit of a I wouldn't call it a meditation, but from the outside, it looks like that, like mm -hmm. just sitting still and being kind of inwardly focused. Um, and, you know, food, water, some movement, talk to somebody in my personal life that I love and want to hear from and want to share with and that kind of stuff. Taking care of myself in general, um, like definitely letting myself acknowledge when I'm overwhelmed by work instead of just pretending like I'm not or not wanting to be so saying I'm not really checking in spending time around my mentors um, which I do one or two times a month I have a couple of women who have been doing this 
one of them been doing this work for 60 years um, and the other one long time not as long and they just know a lot of things I don't know and they've dealt with a lot of things I haven't dealt with and so they teach me and we process it's kind of a place to feel what we feel doing this work um, so they keep me on the right track and they keep me focused on the right things I think we kind of do that there's a synergy, you know, there. Yeah, yeah. So mentors, um, my own therapeutic practices, which at this age and stage of development have become a lot of sensory things like baths or aroma stuff or time outside in the sunshine or making things um, like piddling, like I said, mm -hmm. uh, and spending time with people who my friends just messing around having fun um it dilutes the heaviness sometimes and then talking to somebody every day that i think knows more than i do <laughs> it's just i like to learn and i like to i like to do the same thing you do in therapy it's just you're not working right yeah, right I know. Yeah, so I know. <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> so I think taking care of myself now means acknowledging that I need to, where mm -hmm. I didn't always do that. Okay. Um, and then finding out what does that look like today and then being committed to doing that today. And if not today, then when? Mm -hmm. And being steadfast in that accountability and commitment. Because um, I just, you know, start to lose my mind when I don't do that stuff. I feel that. Mm-hmm. Okay. How would you define happiness? Hmm. Well, I wrote something down. Um, I just, I laughed when I read that question originally because it's like, that's the question, right? Um, I used to think it was a feeling. And I mean, I guess I still do, but I think of it as more of a context now, like a situation where my basic needs are met um, and I have an idea of and an opportunity to connect with my purpose on some level regularly. I have people in my life who I love, who love me. Um, and I have time and space to like dream and imagine. And then when that's your container for whatever happens day to day, because some days are good, some days are shit, you know, but like you can still be happy on the shit days. Right. In right. my in my mind. Yeah. Um so happiness is... Or content, at least, maybe. Yeah. And it's kind of a spectrum, I guess. Like, from contentment to, like, total ecstasy, right? Like, <laughs> happiness is somewhere in there. I think it's also, like, a mark. It's kind of what, what I shoot for, you know? Mm. Somewhere in that spectrum of positivity, benevolence, fairness, being willing to commit to imagining a positive outcome... Um, especially if I'm imagining a negative outcome. It's, it's a lot about my thinking, the way I train my thinking. So to be honest, I don't really know what it is, but I think that I have, have kind of identified a system for getting close to it. Mm -hmm. And I know when I feel it. And I, I think everybody's is kind of different, but I think that's a good question. And I think that might even be 
like a golden ticket in therapy like happiness is not always the same thing so asking every single person what does it look like for you to be happy mm-hmm. what are we shooting for here right right and i think also though there are some people who feel happiness is like a place of being like but like on a consistent basis you mm-hmm. know what i mean like mm-hmm. like it's a state to be achieved that you just stay there and like you know oh, what i yeah. mean no <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not that. Right, right. So, I don't know. When I think of happiness, I think uh, of happiness as kind of fleeting in some ways. Mm-hmm. I heard this once. Um, it came from Susan. It was some printout that I found in her giant file cabinet that talked about it like a lot of people want or think joy and happiness should be like a floodlight, like, and then, right, like, right. just... But if someone shines a floodlight in your face, right? That's not a pleasant experience. And that in this note, it was saying it can be more like twinkle lights, like string lights. Mm-hmm. So they're there. It goes on for a long time. They come on and off. It's not so much that it's overwhelming, but it doesn't go off for so long that you get hopeless. And it's just, it's these bursts. It's, it's like... Um, just grabbing it in the passing moments of life my mom has this sticky note inside her cabinet that says that grab happiness in the passing moments of life and so I think when our basic needs are met we're able to like look up and look out and see when it's passing and grab it more than if our basic needs aren't met for sure for sure okay next couple questions are a little vulnerable first one is what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? There are so many. <laughs> uh, so many. I once I nearly like once I was like falling asleep in a family session. Um, I was really tired, didn't sleep good the night before. It was at the end of the day. The parent could come like after work, so it was like a 4:30, you know what a horrible time in the day in the afternoon and it's hot and you know everybody's tired and it was they it was constructive initially and then they started getting into it and at some point I realized I just kind of came to like and I thought I wonder if they saw if I (laughs) did I close my eyes did they see me close my eyes um and so but when I told Susan about it she's like oh yeah I've done that before (laughs) so I felt better about it um I've also you know one of those situations where some big incident happens at the psych hospital in the adolescent unit and every case manager is told to like just take this and go start calling parents and and inform them about what's happened and you get two words into a phone call to explain this child's behavior and you realize you have the wrong parent to the wrong child (laughs) So you either quickly recover or you say, um, I'm going to need to call you back in just a minute. (laughs) But it's stuff like that. It's like oversights um, and just misses that come from, I think, especially in the beginning, not knowing really how to take care of yourself. And you're in this really hard job and you just look like an idiot sometimes because you don't have balance. So those, those come to my mind right now. Okay. And then the next one you kind of already answered. So the question is, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? I'm not currently in therapy, but yes, I have been in therapy with multiple therapists. And 
good ones too. Um, but kind of right now, I feel like I'm at a place where the mentoring group that we do is feeding my brain and my spirit in a way that works for me. But I absolutely will find myself back there at multiple points throughout my life. You know, it's it's good stuff when you need it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Katie Bruce, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you or your practice? Mm. Not right now, you know, and if you think of something you want to know when you're listening, you just call me at 325-665-7950 and ask your questions. For now, I think that's it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Katie Bruce. I'm using your whole name throughout the entire show because I think it's funny. Um, it was... People have done that to me my whole <laughs> life. My mom calls me Katie Bruce. <laughs> I don't know why. So I don't know why. They just go together. I don't know. But yeah, my, I like, I my like mother. My, yeah. It feels in my mouth yeah. or something. Hey, I, I like it. Well, um, thank you, the Katie Bruce, for being <laughs> on the show. It's been a real pleasure. And of course, um, you know, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a really cool experience. And you guys, Noah's like killer interviewer. It's been a lot of fun. This usually isn't my bag, but <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. So thanks for the time and attention. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Izzy Sundet, licensed professional counselor who will be talking about her practice in an area of specialty, treatment for sex offenders. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest podcasts rely solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.